Have a seat. Shame and failure for a Christian life should be vastly different than one that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because if we are honest with ourselves, all of us are ashamed of certain things we've done or said over the years, maybe this morning. And all of us have failed in probably some big ways and some small ways. And in Christ, we know there's hope. But I wonder if while we know that, we believe that and live out the grace that God's given us or we wrestle with who we are because of failure. I was 19 years old when I got a a phone call from my dad saying, we need to talk. And on the surface, I was living a righteous life. I was saying the right things. I was around the right kind of people theoretically. And I had made the right choices that the world, the church world would see and think, oh yeah, he's set. But I was doing my very best to live two lives. The life that the the church saw and expected me to be perfect, expected me to be the pastor's kid that made no mistakes. And I also, in private, was living the life that was saying, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to choose the ways of the prodigal son. I wasn't running away from my family, but I certainly wasn't living in a life that was pleasing to the Lord. I knew that, I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I chose to do it anyway because that's what everyone else was doing. And I couldn't see past my nose, as the saying goes. I could only see what was right in front of me, and that's what I wanted. So I did my very best to live that dual life. So when it came time to choose a university, uh, because of certain skill sets that I'd been given, I had uh, a few choices in my life. So I chose, because of a deal I had made with my father, that I would go to a Christian school. So what did I do? I picked the one that was the least Christian I could find. They didn't require me to go to church. Now, this was all going in. This was where my spiritual life was going into university. So I wasn't required to go to church. I wasn't required to do much outside of show up at class, get decent grades, yada, yada, yada. But I continued to live that dual life shortly into my college career, and things just weren't clicking. You know, I loved being at university. I loved my friends. And I started going to church out of choice because I wanted to. I started doing things because I wanted to, but I also didn't want to let go of the sinful behaviors that had grabbed my heart because they were easy, they were right in front of me, and sometimes, you know, I enjoyed them. I knew they were wrong, but yet they were still there. And then the call came, and my dad begins to talk with me saying, I know what you've done, I know the life you've been living. You can either tell me the truth or we can deal with other consequences. I was a grown man, so he couldn't spank me and send me to my room at this point, but he's still my father, and he still loved me. And I've got a a great relationship with both my parents, but anyone that knows you would know that I'm a mama's boy. And so talking with my dad was one thing, but we agreed then that I confessed, I repented, and I I truly did repent. I I was committed to moving forward after that, that it, it almost felt like there was a freedom of having the sin spoken, confessing it, repenting of it, and and moving forward like the hiddenness, the secrecy was done. It was over and it was time to move forward. But we agreed that it would hurt my mom and so that let's not 
say anything. Well, my big mouth, I referred to things that she didn't know about, and so she began to ask questions. The next weekend, she came down and sat down, took me out to lunch at university, and sat across from me just weeping because she saw the double life that I had been leading. And she was ashamed of me, and she was ashamed for me, and she was brokenhearted because of the choices I had made. And you want to break a heart of a kid that loves his family, have your mother look at you with those disapproving, broken-hearted eyes. And it hurt. Not because I felt like she was doing something wrong, because I knew that my sin had hurt others. I knew that my shame had spread, that the consequences of my choices were not mine alone. And I had to look at my mother, who I, was, I am still very close to. You know this. She comments on my Facebook all the time. But I had to look at her, and I had to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she didn't have to forgive me. There was nothing in her that said she had to forgive me. I had disappointed her. I had let her down. I had lived a dual life. I was a hypocrite. The list could go on. I knew better was ultimately what she said to me. But as I asked for forgiveness and as we talked, she looked at me and she then asked, have we dealt with this? I said, yes, what I told you. I said, I've confessed. This, This isn't who I am anymore. And she said, good, now what will you do with it? Where will you go from here? It can either mark the rest of your life or you can grow from it. We all face shame and failure in different ways. But my mom taught me a powerful lesson very quickly and in one sentence. Where will you go from here? Peter failed spectacularly. And it's really encouraging to my heart every time I fail that I get to read about The Rock, one of the founders of our church, and the mistakes that he made. He was a man that boldly said, when everybody else leaves you, Jesus, you got me. I'm not going anywhere. He was the one that boldly jumped out of the boat and said, I'll go with you anywhere, Jesus. And then he looked down and he sunk. He was the one that made audacious statements of how great his faith was and how great he could be in his own strength. And Jesus looked at him in the eyes and said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And even then, Peter says, no way. You're wrong. I would never do that. I am stronger than that. I know better. Yet, as the story goes, you find it in all the Gospels. Peter did, in fact, deny Jesus. I never even knew him. I don't know who you're speaking of. You're wrong. You don't know. And he says that three times. And on the third time, I can relate to how he felt because he realized the depth of his own self-pride and his own betrayal of his Lord. And when the rooster crowed and he realized what he'd done, he wept bitterly because of the great shame of knowing he had denied Jesus Christ as his Lord. He had hurt his friend, 
and he had sinned greatly. And that's where we pick up the story this morning as we watch this. Grace is God's unmerited favor for us, his crazy love. And the truth is, many times we struggle understanding it. If you find yourself struggling to understand God's grace, don't beat yourself up. Even the disciples struggled with understanding grace. Jesus, is that you? You're alive. I can't believe you're alive. Okay, I was in the boat, and I wasn't catching any fish, okay? But I heard this voice, and the voice said, cast your net to the other side. And so I'm thinking, I'm a fisherman. I know what I'm doing, but I'm not catching any fish, you know? And so I throw that net over there, and then a gaggle of fish pop into that net, and I'm going, this is a total miracle. Who could have done that? I need to know who told me to throw the net to the other side. And boom, I look up, and I mean, there is you. You're looking at me on the seashore going, it is I, the Lord, and you're alive. I can't believe you're alive. This is awesome. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on. Peter, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. You're alive. This is so great. Good, then feed my sheep. Andrew, get out of the boat. Come on, man. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? I love you. Yes. And I'm so sorry about that rooster clucking. I had no idea what that meant, but I do not. I'm better for it, all right? Okay. Then feed my sheep. Andrew, I'm smiling, but I'm serious. Come on, get out of the boat. It's him. Peter. Yeah. Do you love me? Jesus, mere words cannot describe the passion that I have for you. I love you. You know everything. I love you. Good. Good. Then feed my sheep. I didn't even know you had livestock. That is so like you, though. There's something new about you all the time. That's what I love about you. Peter, yeah. do you remember uh, the morning the ladies went to the tomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all in the upper room trying to figure out what to do next, you know, because we thought you were dead. You know, you were dead, you know, and we're trying to figure all that out, you know. And Mary comes running up, and Mary's like saying, beehive, beehive, beehive. And I'm thinking, I'm allergic to bees. Like, keep them out. You know what I'm saying? But as she kept getting closer, I heard her correctly. She was saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. And we're going, who's alive, who's alive? And she said, she was at the tomb, and the tomb was empty. And she said that there was an angel there. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. And so me and John, we hightailed it down there. And if John says he beat me, he's totally lying, all right? I beat him, FYI, all right, you know? And we get down there, and I'm looking in that tomb, and it is. It is empty. There's nothing in there, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And John is right there. John is so good with words. He should write a book. He is so good with words. And John said, don't you get it, Peter? This is everything Jesus said he was going to do, and you did it, and it's done. Let's go. This is so great. Wait. The angel said what? Uh, go tell the disciples and Peter that everything is okay. He is risen. You've risen. Let's go. This he is said okay. what? Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Peter. You said my name. Why did you say my name? Peter, that's grace. No, no, I don't, I don't deserve that because that night people kept coming up to me asking me if I belonged to you, if I was with you, and I kept denying you left and right, all right? No, it'll take me my whole life to make up for what I did. It was unforgivable for no, what I did. No, What I did on the cross was meant to take what is unforgivable and make it forgivable. That's my grace. It's not about you. It's always about me. That's grace, Peter. You've gotten a visual picture with some editorial and creative license there, no doubt. But 
you've gotten a picture of what it might have been like to be part of that conversation between Jesus and Peter that you find in your Bibles in John chapter 21. And three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Now, there's debate, to be honest and, and, and forthright with you, because John chooses to use two different words for love in this passage. Some believe that he's trying to get... Uh, Peter to understand the depth of agape love, and Peter doesn't get it. He sticks on phileo love, the the relational uh, friendship, brotherhood type of love, while this agape, this all-encompassing, eternal, only from God love is what Jesus is asking for. Others say, no, John used the words interchangeably, which he does throughout the scriptures. But any way you look at it, the question is still the same here. Peter do you love me? Do you love me enough to believe that you are forgiven? You see, Peter at this point in his life was ashamed. There's no question about that. He had betrayed his Lord. Remember last week we discussed Pentecost and and Peter's first big sermon. He introduces all to the concept that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He is the ruler of my life and he is the promised savior of my people. And we're going to look at what my people would mean for Peter in a few moments. But Peter was wrestling with the very real thing that you and I have probably faced time and again. Shame. A feeling of guilt, regret, or sadness. This is Merriam-Webster. I used the American Dictionary this week just to mix it up a little bit instead of the Oxford. So there you go. A feeling of guilt, regret, or sadness that you have become that you have because you know you've done something wrong. Peter knows this. He's walking with this. He's beginning to make his betrayal most likely part of his identity. He's beginning to think that he's not up to the task, that the fact that Jesus had given him the name Cephas, the rock, wasn't suitable for him. And Jesus looks at him and three times asks the question. And three times, with slightly different words each time, says, feed my sheep. Don't camp out in your shame. Learn from it and get back to doing what I told you to do. You see, for us, here's the verse. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John. He goes back to his original name, Simon Barjona. Do you love me? It hurt Peter's feelings that he had to be asked a third time. I don't think it hurt Peter to be asked. I think it was the culmination. Like when my mother sat across the table and looked at me with those broken-hearted eyes, the culmination of the grief, the sadness, the guilt, and the shame from his actions that brought such grief that he probably didn't even want to look at Jesus. He was grieved, but he could. And he responds, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus doesn't say, well, then you really shouldn't have done that. Because here's the thing. Peter already knew he shouldn't have done that. Peter already knew 
he shouldn't have done a lot of the things he'd done. No one needed to help him feel guilty at this point. What he needed to know was how to go forward. And that's what Jesus was teaching Peter. Three times. Many commentators will say that it was three times, one for each of the denials of his great name. Others will say it was because Jesus really wanted to make a point. Either way you look at it, the truth is the same. It was drilled into Peter's head that he had a job to do. But that shame needed to be dealt with. You see, shame is painful. We know this. We don't like to deal with our shame as humans. If we did, we'd be much more transparent. And I'm going to talk about that because here's what we find. And you can read uh, secular sociologists and behavioral psychologists. You can read the Christian ones. And most will say the same thing. We carry our shame inwardly. Do you understand what I'm saying there? What that means essentially is when it comes to shame, when it comes to our personal sin and our personal disgrace or our personal feelings of inadequacy, and I want to bring that out here in just a moment, we carry it inside. We don't invite others to walk with us through healing in that process. Whether it's because of the humiliation that we face, whether it's because we're uncomfortable talking about it, whether it's because it's just too painful, whatever it is, we tend as humanity across the world, regardless of culture, and we'll get there too, but regardless, we tend to carry shame inwardly. But it doesn't stop because we need to learn that shame doesn't define us. Now, shame can have a couple of components that I want to be clear on. First is it's the result of our behavior, much as my story. I carried the shame with me because I had chosen to be a hypocrite. I had chosen to sin. I had chosen to live in rebellion. And when I was found out, when I was asked the question and I I told the truth, that shame was great in me. It was my choice, and it was my shame. And it took me a long time to know that there was freedom in Christ, that my sin would be remembered no more, and that those choices would not define me. But I also shouldn't go back to them. But there's another kind of shame that the church faces growing need to know how to handle. And that's shame that we bear that we had no part in. You may know someone or be someone that faced abuse at some point in your life, but you've never felt comfortable talking about it. You've never felt safe being able to share that you were abused as a child or even as a teenager or as an adult. You may feel shame knowing that you made a choice in your marital relationship that you don't want anyone to know about it or that your spouse made that choice and there was nothing you could do about it. You see, it can go both ways. Someone might have treated you so unjustly that it began to define how you looked at yourself and you saw yourself through the lenses of their sin and their choice and what they did to you. And you wonder, how do I get past that? Well, I'm here to tell you the word of God says that your shame 
regardless of where it came from. And please don't think I'm trying to make light of shame, but it does not define you. It is not who you are. The love of God, the grace that comes to us that transcends all understanding, teaches us that we have great freedom because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And when he rose again victoriously over sin once for all, we have been set free because of his great work. In a powerful story, uh, Brenny, Dr. Brené Brown, uh, a behavioral psychologist herself, uh, decided to write a book. And the, book, the first book she wrote that got notoriety uh, was called, I'm going to forget the name, so let me get it, was the, called The Gifts of Imperfection. She began to notice that one of the biggest struggles people have in relating to one another is the fact that we can't be vulnerable with each other. We hide our shame. In fact, she says this in her next book, Daring Greatly. And this came as she was learning how to deal with vulnerability herself. But she said, shame derives its power from being unspeakable. We hide it. That's why it loves perfectionists. The church, she's not a Christian as far as I know, but she's learning and making a lot of very biblical conclusions in her writing that make me think that someday she will, I pray, come to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. But she says this, shame loves perfectionists because it's so easy to keep us quiet. In the church, I would say shame loves legalists, loves moralists, because we love to expect everyone else to do the right thing all the time and let them know when they've failed. But we don't want anyone to talk to us about our shame. Interestingly enough, Dr. Brenny Brown was writing these books and she felt like the only way she was going to have the authority to speak into lives on the need for vulnerability was to get up and to begin to tell her story. And one of the most viral TED Talks ever came when she got up in Houston at a TEDx conference, the small ones, the ones nobody goes to. And halfway through, she broke down in tears and could barely finish her talk. She's an esteemed PhD. She's an esteemed doctor of behavioral psychology. And she couldn't get through her TED Talk. The great honor that was getting the invite to give a TED Talk. And in the eyes of the world, she may have failed. Instead, months later, this same woman was invited by a very large group of elite policemen in America. They asked her to come talk to them about vulnerability and shame because they'd seen that she was real and that she could talk about it and not just tell them what to do and not understand. You see, Dr. Brenny Brown is learning the valuable lesson that we in the church try to run from. We need each other to work through our pain and our shame and our sorrow. We are not created to do it on our own. And Jesus is giving Peter these marching orders saying, go feed my sheep. I'm restoring you not because you're qualified on your own, but in spite of your failure, because my grace is sufficient to build the church through a broken man like you. What do we learn about Peter's shame? 
Well, the victory of Christ carries our shame so that we don't have to. Jesus looked at Peter and he sent him out. He didn't say, don't forget what you did to me. He said, go feed my sheep. Go take care of my people. The victory was sealed. It's done. Jesus earlier has told us, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. Peter, heavy burdened. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore his shame so that Peter didn't have to. Jesus carrying the burden of our shame frees us from the paralyzing effects of shame. Have you noticed that when you're deep in the throes and of the pain of shame, that it's so difficult to get yourself to do anything? Have you ever noticed that? You're so embarrassed, you're so hurt, you're so fill in the blank with that word that we can't do anything. But Jesus teaches us, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, have it to the freest. In this world, you will have many troubles, but fear not, I have overcome the world. We're taught that Jesus frees us from the paralyzing effect of shame because we can give it to him. It's not ours to carry anymore. But in so doing, when we give up our shame, when we let it go, when we say, Lord, my past will not define me because you paid the price for it. You have given me freedom. You have forgiven me. If I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me my sins and purify me, wash me white as snow. If you have done those things, then that freedom calls me to act. When we've been given a great gift, we want to go tell people about that great gift, don't we? The best example I can give that is when someone gets engaged because you can't shut the fiancé up. She's ready to show her ring to everyone. It doesn't matter if it's the ugliest ring that, that groom could pick out. She's going to love it because it's so special and it's so meaningful and she wants to tell the world. Now, in my case, I got it right. I picked out the right ring. I didn't. She picked it out and I just got her the one she wanted. But the point is, you know what Melissa did when I asked her to marry me? She called her parents. She told her friends. She told everybody. Now, I hope she's still that excited to be my wife. But in a much bigger sense, when we learn that we've been set free from our shame, when we learn that our forgiveness means that our sins are to be remembered no more, we should want to tell the world that your past doesn't define you. Jesus Christ came He paid the price. He carried your sins on his shoulders, on his cross, and he rose victoriously over it. You don't have to live with that anymore. When we're set free, we should want to give that freedom away. Feed my sheep. Don't keep it to yourself, Pete. Don't hide it here. Go let others know the shame doesn't have to define them anymore. I took it. I've got it. 
whether you did it to yourself and to others, or whether it was inflicted upon you, Jesus says, I've got you. I will wrap you in the loving arms and give you access to my Father who is in heaven and let you call him Daddy because of what I've done for you. Your sins are remembered no more. So don't live there. Peter had to learn that lesson. And you know what? He did. Because just a few chapters onward, what do we read in Acts? He proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ is our Lord and Messiah. And all, he quotes Joel and he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved from their sins. He's beginning to understand the truth of the gospel that says our sins do not define us. Our shame does not define us. Our pain does not define us. The love of God, the grace of God sets us free from our past. And Peter was living proof. So time goes on. Peter has a vision. And he's told, Peter, go kill and eat. And Peter, again, dares to argue with God. I love that about him. He is audacious, if nothing else. And you read in Acts that he's told more than once. Maybe you can relate to that. Sometimes we need to be told things a few times. Go kill and eat, Peter. What God has made unclean, let no man say, or what God has made clean, let no man say is unclean. God is giving Peter a new understanding of freedom, a freedom that would open the gates wide to Gentiles as well as Jews. Now, what that, that doesn't mean much to us today. And so I, I want to give you a, a very basic understanding of it when this was happening. Basically, Jews were keeping Jesus to themselves, but Gentiles, those that were not of the Jewish race and faith, they were beginning to hear about Jesus and wanting to know who is this Jesus and how can I follow him. And so the Jews, not necessarily knowing anybody any better, began to put all these rules on them. You can't eat this, you can't do that, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And they got confused because they didn't understand that Jesus said, it's my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's why we remind you of that every time we have communion together. It's so important that there was a new law for all people. Paul, the great apostle, would say, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free are separated from the love of Christ. He is for everyone that would call on his great name. And Peter had to learn that. Peter had to learn that he wasn't up here and everybody else was down there, those dirty, filthy Gentiles. And you know what? That's what he thought at first. He was chosen. He was a Jew. He was special. But Peter gets this vision and he begins to share that. He goes and he sits at the table of a Gentile. And then the apostles themselves realize, okay, this is bigger than just an isolated incident with Pete. We should talk about this. The word is spreading to places like Antioch and good things are happening. And so they hold what's called the Jerusalem Council. Fancy name for a big meeting. Which, by the way, famously... 
James, the brother of Jesus that had early on not believed in Jesus, was part of this meeting, and some would say that he chaired it, but that's for your study of James and notes then. But certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the unbelievers the wrong things. They were saying that unless you're circumcised, you have no place with Jesus. And the apostles, the disciples, had to decide, is that true? What are we going to do with this? And who gets up to speak? Well, who do you think gets up to speak? Peter. And briefly, Peter just says in Acts chapter 15, after much discussion, Peter got up and he addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart. This is Peter talking. God who knows the heart, even his heart even Peter's heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He, God, did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Then why, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we are saved just as they are. Peter gets up and says, stop it. There is freedom in Christ. Our identity is in the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not in our ability to follow the laws. Just like the video shared, it's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And Peter reminds them of that. And the apostles wisely send out a letter saying, follow these basic rules, but otherwise we're with you. And the rules were don't eat meat that has been offered to idols or that is unclean. Uh, I'll, I'll read it to you exactly so you understand. But it would have been tremendously revolutionary for them to say such as things. They agreed that you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. They put no further restriction upon them. That broke open the doors for the gospel to go near and far. And for a little while things went really, really well. And the name of Jesus was spreading quickly. Doesn't sound like failure to me, does it? Sounds like Peter was doing the right thing. But I want you to understand what failure is. Failure and shame are slightly different. And I want us to understand the slight difference. Failure is an omission or a, of occurrence or performance, a failing to perform a duty or expected action. In layman's terms, you know the right thing to do and you choose not to do it. Or you do the wrong thing instead. When you do that, you have failed. Or you have failed to perform at the expectations given you. If you fail a test, it means you didn't meet the minimum requirement of the expectation given by the professor or the teacher, correct? It is not, as much as students will try to argue, the scale is not rolling, there is pass and there is fail. I know education has changed and whatnot, but there's still that. In the same way, sin is sin. Righteousness is righteousness. Holiness is holiness. It's simple. 
So what about Pete? Well, we get to Galatians chapter 2, and we read a weird little side note from a guy named Paul. Paul is not Peter. Paul was not with Jesus when he walked the earth um, as a disciple. Paul was called later in a miraculous setting. And in so doing, he was adopted into apostleship. He was adopted even more into the great family of God and became arguably the most successful missionary of all time. He got the privilege of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. It was he who was chosen by God specifically to be the greatest church planter everywhere. Everywhere he went, he was planting churches and telling people, have you met Jesus? Have I got a story for you? But let me go ahead and paint a picture. There's Paul who wrestles himself, and you can read it in his letters, with people accusing him of, you aren't a real apostle. You're not qualified. I understand that. It's a difficult thing to feel that. And in fact, he's just defended his qualifications just a few verses before. But it gets harder for Paul. And my heart goes out to him here too because what does he have to do? Well, he has to look at Cephas, at the rock, at Peter. And he has to look at his behavior and see that's not what was happening before. Something's wrong because This is what we're told. This is what Paul writes, and he wants us all to learn from it, so he puts it in his letter. But go ahead and think of the dynamics. Paul, wrestling with a little bit of what people think and whether he's got the authority as an apostle, having to go to the apostle, Peter, the one who speaks on the disciples' behalf the one who was there at Pentecost and got to preach the first sermon, that Peter... Paul is charged with the task of confronting him and telling him, you failed. Man, you think Paul slept the night before talking, having that conversation, especially knowing that Peter tends to be a little bit vocal in how he processes things, speaks first, things later? That conversation had very little promise of going the way we would hope it would. But Paul knew what he needed to do and what does he, he call the church to? When Cephas came to Antioch, most think that Peter wanted to see what God was doing in Antioch, so he came on down. I opposed him to his face. I didn't go, did you hear what Peter was doing? Have you seen how he's acting over there? No, he went straight to Peter. And he said, you stand condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, when the men from James, the brother of Jesus, came, Peter backed away, kind of like denial all over again, and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles, because what might others think of me? And in so doing, especially to whom one is given much, like Peter, he was showing the world a moralistic gospel, not the good news of Jesus Christ. He was showing the world that there is a distinction and that you're not as good as the Jews over here. And Paul had to confront him on it. And Paul had to deal with it head on. 
which is a great Matthew 18 moment that we can learn from, and we can talk about that later. But what do we see comes out of this resulting in how Peter's life is framed? Because what we know now is that Peter's ministry didn't stop because of this failure. You see, we learn a few things as we see this account. The first is that failure is usually visible. Where shame we hide internally. If you're at work, I've got a friend that was talking to me. He's in the financial industry and he was talking about Brexit. And the day of Brexit, someone in his company misappropriated a huge sum of resources. And it was a massive mistake. So it made the effects of Brexit tenfold greater and worse than they would have been otherwise. That failure was for all to see within the company because it affected everyone and it was very public. Peter's failure to remind Jews and Gentiles that we're in this together, that we're one family, was very public. It's why Paul had to oppose him to his face so that everyone could see there was someone with enough courage to love Peter enough to say, stop it. It had to be done so that people knew this wasn't the way to live. This is not the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what man has added to it. And Peter was getting, was getting smacked in the face and saying, wake up, this is wrong. This public act of failure is wrong. It's carried externally. We hang on to it. It can label us. Now here's why I say this. I want you to remember this. While we do talk about Peter and the fact that he was the one that denied Christ three times, he was the one that made some mistakes, we often do so with great respect and admiration because of how God used a failed man like Peter, do we not? Did these sinful behaviors mark the life of Peter and define him and keep him from effective ministry? They did not. His failure didn't stop him from proclaiming the greatness of, good, of Jesus Christ. His failure taught him again about who Jesus is and where his allegiance and the affections of his heart lie. Because we learn as we look at Peter's writings later on in life that failure is not permanent. Why do I make this conclusion? Well, when I read First and Second Peter at the end of Peter's life before he's martyred, I read of a man that has a vast understanding of the greatness of God's grace poured out on all. I read of a man that understands our need to suffer and persevere well. And I don't think he's just referring to suffering that comes from outside. I think he understands that sometimes our own failures cause suffering and that those need to be dealt with for the sake of the believers. Where do I draw those conclusions from? Open your Bibles and you would see 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 say this. Through him you believe in God. Through Jesus Christ you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and your hope are in God. Your faith and your hope are not in me, church. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, don't trust me. I failed. Everyone in the world knows Peter failed. No secret there. And he's reminding people of what he needed to be reminded of. Your faith and your hope in times of failure, in times of shame, are in Jesus Christ, not yourself. But he goes on and he says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Remember? 
And so we are living the holy life. We're not earning our purity. That is done by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But we are living the pure life by obeying what he said and living it out, not marked by our sins. This is a man that has sinned greatly, that has failed greatly, that carried tremendous shame. And now he writes, Oh, you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for who? For each other. Oh, and yeah, love one another deeply from the heart. This isn't just written to Jews. This is written to the church. The man that didn't want to be associated with the Gentiles is now calling all of the church to love each other deeply. The man that failed greatly is learning from that and saying, give that grace, that hope, that faith away. Don't let it mark you. Learn from it. Be better for it. Let his blood cleanse you and then give him away. If grace is kept to ourselves, we have no business receiving it. It has to be given away because it was so freely given to us, but it cost Jesus everything. You see, failure dealt with properly. This is what Peter wrote. Failure dealt with properly reminds us our hope is in Christ and not our own abilities. I can't fix myself. That shame will eat me alive if I don't lay it at the foot of the cross and say I'm free, just like we sang in closing last week. And failure has to lead to obedience because when we've looked at our mistake and we know that we can't continue on in that pattern, there's only one other way to go for a Christian, and that's forward, obeying the word of the Lord joyfully because we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been set free from our failure. It doesn't define us and mark us anymore. It's been remembered no more. And so we move forward. And finally, our failure moves us to love others deeply. It doesn't mean they deserve it because that's what we've just learned in dealing with our shame and our failures. We don't deserve forgiveness and freedom. But by the grace of God given to me, I am a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And I am going to love deeply because that's how God loved me. And in so doing, what did he tell Peter? Go feed my sheep. What do we do? Well, I think we have to draw the conclusion that we've got to go do the same. We have to look around our rooms. We have to look around our city. We have to look around our world. It's not hard to see our world is in great need of hope. Our world is in great need of someone to say, You don't have to carry that shame, that failure around anymore. There is a better way. The grace of God poured out on us through the miraculous work of Christ is sufficient to give us freedom from shame and guilt and to give that away to others. That's what making disciples is all about, pointing people to the greatness of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done and saying your identity is in him not in who you were because I'm a new creation. 
I get to stand here today because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, you used a man like Peter to show us that while failure is real, it doesn't have to end our ability to serve you faithfully. It doesn't define us for the rest of time. It's your grace, your miraculous work, and your forgiveness that give us the ability to shout to you, I am free. Lord, you are our Lord, our King, and our Father. Help us to turn to you with our shame and with our failure and to leave them with you to go and sin no more. In your name, amen.